Are you ready? Are you shitting down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, Season 3. It's Episode 70 of The Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. On today's episode, I am joined by author Brad Stolberg. He's got a new book out, The Master of Change, which is absolutely outstanding. We have a great conversation with Brad as we dive into his book and much more. That interview is coming up shortly. And Dave, I want to ask you, and I really want to stay with the theme of change. And I want to take a minute to talk about change and personal growth, something I experienced with my clients. And as you look back to when you were divorced and the journey that you've had up until now, how would you characterize your growth and what you learned about parenting, raising kids, family dynamics that has changed your perspective over the years? Well, I think I've, I've learned the great power of independence and the the ability to become a good parent based solely on your own philosophies, ideals, etc. It It really, part of the reason one gets divorced oftentimes is that that relationship isn't working out. Many people go straight into another relationship. I didn't do that. So it's it was really a whirlwind of things from empowering things like figuring out how you're going to just how you're going to spend the day with the kids. You get to plan that all out yourself and then realizing how much you don't know <laughs> and just kind of learning along the way. So independence for sure, but not without not not without its some Rocky moments, but overall, pretty pretty enlightening and pretty fulfilling. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I want to ask you, because one of the things that Brad talks about, and we'll get more into it with his great interview coming up, is he talks about core values, right? And the importance of core values. And we talked about whether those core values can change annually or every few years. The core values that you had when you were together when you were newly divorced and now are some of those core values the same or some of the things that were important to you then very different? I think so. I think so because anytime you're in a a relationship, it's, it's always give and take, right? So the, you're and and my, the kid's mom and I, we really made an effort to be on the same page when it came to parenting and still do, which is, which is a nice thing actually. But, those those values that you bring up the kids by, there's some compromise embedded in that, and that it's it's your opinion and their and their opinion, and you have to come up with something together. So, core value like what values of I don't know. It, it's I mean I guess overall it, it really governed by spending time with the kids and trying to and trying to ensure that everyone's as happy as possible. That sounds simple and sort of idyllic, but. It's, it's kind of what it comes down to. One of the things that surprised me, though, is that I was not the type ever to send a thank you note for something. I was not the type of person who remembered to bring a bottle of wine and a fruitcake to someone's house because that's what you do when you go to their house. But but I learned but I noticed myself doing those things after I was divorced. So in an odd sense, my my ex-wife really taught me a lot of things that. I carried over, which is which is an okay thing. It's it's a nice way of looking at divorce is that you don't have to throw away everything you experienced on the other side. Yeah, no, and it begs the question because I love a good fruit cake and a nice bottle of wine. So, <laughs> Dave, where, where's my fruit cake and bottle of wine? <laughs> on the way, I'm uh, I'm sure. You've been saying that for uh, how many years have we known each other on this podcast? You've been saying that for three years. It's on the way. <laughs> You, let's see what we can do. The, the Hanukkah Harry's on the way, Evan. That is true. And one of your core values, which I know you never waver from, is putting on one hell of a docket. So, producer Dave, it's time. Let's fire it up. And now, let's see what's on the docket. A jam-packed docket this edition, Evan. And let's 
get started with the first article, which comes to us from Open to OpenDemocracy.net. Item one. Very interesting piece here, Evan. The, the headline reads, Far-right Republicans have an unlikely new target in their sights, divorce. Bans on no-fault divorces would be unpopular, but the Republicans may be too caught up in the in a moral panic to care. So writes Chrissy Stroop. What did you think of, of this piece, Evan? Dave, I've been chomping at the bit to talk about this, and of course you put this number one because you can tell my blood's boiling even mm. thinking about this because let me start by saying this. Mike Johnson and anyone who wants to issue a ban on no-fault divorce is totally lost and out of touch and is ignoring the tremendous benefits of no-fault divorce. Let's talk about some of those benefits of no-fault divorce. First, the article mentions it has freed up so many people, particularly women, to escape from intolerable and abusive marriages and situations to pursue better and happier lives. If one party wants to pursue a divorce, they can. They don't need to prove grounds for divorce and where one spouse doesn't have the resources to pursue it, then that person stays in an unhappy and miserable marriage where they're trapped. And I got to tell you, from the practical side and the practitioner side of things, the time and money it saves people from arguing over whether or not there's sufficient grounds to get divorced, it's tremendous. I mean, back in the day, one spouse would often oppose the divorce solely as leverage or to see that the party getting the divorce would have to fight and spend so many so much by way of financial resources and use that as leverage in the divorce negotiation. I'll give you the divorce, but you need to agree to my financial terms. Dave, I got to tell you, let me know your thoughts, but hearing this, it, it, it's, it's, it's out of touch. It, there's something grotesquely out of, out of old fashioned about it. This this almost, almost barbaric. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's what it is. Yeah. It, it, it's cruel to think that, you, you need to prove that you don't want to be with this person when it's almost like government. Why is it your business as to why I'm living in misery here? Why is it your business to decide whether we should stay together when it might be terrible for both of us and the kids? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the, the horror stories you hear occasionally about the Hasidic Jews who, who will, refuse sometimes to let a woman out of a, a marriage because they have that whole get process and it's yeah. yeah and so i mean imagine if that i mean it only happens in a small number of cases but imagine if that were more the norm it it's morality run amok and the, and the 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 article points out astutely that i guess somewhat ironically it was ronald reagan who was the first president who was divorced it was ronald reagan who signed the no-fault divorce bill into california and like a lot of things whether you're for or against reagan some of this stuff comes around it's like he was onto something there and why would we think to abandon that yeah no absolutely good point as always item two item two comes to us from slate.com it's an advice column that their dear prudence column and the writer says, help, I'm terrified that the divorce is going to leave my wife in shambles. The writer says she is just not prepared for life without me, which is part of the problem. Unusual to hear from a divorcing husband, Evan. What did you think of this letter? Yeah, it was a little unusual. Look, this question to me screams collaborative divorce or mediation. We've talked before about the divorce process choices. My firm offers different ways for couples to go through a divorce, negotiation, litigation, mediation, or collaborative law. And here, look, there's a real concern by the husband, the soon-to-be ex, that, look, he's in a long-term marriage, and he's concerned about his soon-to-be former spouse's financial situation going forward, something that is a bit unorthodox and you don't really hear about too often. And there's a message that he wants to bring up about the importance of taking financial responsibility and financial ownership of things going forward. And there's a way to do this and have this conversation in those two process choices I mentioned, collaborative law and mediation, because at the heart of the husband's message, there's a real and genuine concern that he wants his wife to be okay going forward. And you can have that conversation in either of those process choices and, yeah, the sooner they start those process choices, the easier it will be to have that conversation, and his concern could be addressed. This will sound 
self-serving since it's your podcast, Evan. But to me, this is a great reason why you hire a divorce lawyer. We think of divorce lawyers as pit bulls. Hire this guy if you want to really take your take your spouse to the laundry and just get everything. But here's one where the person's saying, I want to look on the other side of his divorce and make sure my wife is okay. How do I do that? And correct me if I'm wrong, but that is precisely where you come in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, it's a question that too many people don't ask, right? And they should, because in some ways, look, not every situation calls for that type of question to be asked. Not every relationship and marriage is right for mediation or the collaborative law process. But those that are, right, I think as attorneys, when you practice in those areas, you can offer your clients different ways to separate and get divorced. And not every divorce situation needs to be a drop, knockdown, drag out litigation. Item three. Third and final item for the docket comes to us from the L.A. Times. Headline reads, Angelina Jolie says stress from divorce led to Bell's palsy. And the actress is quoted in this piece as saying that her body reacts very strongly to stress and that she suddenly had Bell's palsy six months before her divorce. I've never heard of Bell's palsy being brought on psychosomatically like this, but who am I? I'm no doctor. Your thoughts, Evan? First, I want to say, I think Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have been talked about on each and every season of the Shine On podcast <laughs> as we inch closer to season four of the podcast. I hope for their sake, they find a way to figure out their differences. But after today, Dave, we're retiring Brad Pitt and Angelina <laughs> Jolie from the podcast. Thanks for and the like, memories. Yes. Eh, thanks for the memories. But, but being serious for a moment, we often talk about the emotions and the mental health struggles that people go through in relationships and marriages, especially during the divorce process. There's not a lot of conversation about the physical toll divorce can take on someone's physical health and the body as a result of stress. We've had fantastic guests on the podcast before talking about the importance of self-care and doing things during times of stretch, such as running, yoga, or other mind-clearing hobbies to lower the stress and physical symptoms that people may experience when they're going through a divorce. Dave, let me ask you, what are your thoughts on this and the idea that going through a divorce can lead to stress, anxiety, and those things can have a physical toll on one's physical health in the body? There's no question. There's the stress, there's the anxiety. In my case, I felt very guilty about what was going on then there's the simple change that may lead to health problems. If you're so obsessed with what's going on in your divorce, you're probably not going to get to the gym as much. You're going to neglect things like that. And you probably end up eating a lot of cheeseburgers, which is definitely one thing that happened to me. But the, the, and, and I had a, a relatively amicable divorce, so I can only imagine what it's like for those who go through it. And the hope is that eventually you, you rebuild your life and you start to develop good habits. But, yeah, so I do feel for Angelina, even though we talk about her all the time. We are now up to the portion of the program where we hear from you, the listener, in this edition of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Today, Evan, we hear from Sarah in New Rochelle, New York. She writes as follows. Dear Evan. My ex-husband and I have shared custody of our daughter. She is a happy 12-year-old girl, but my ex-husband has gotten more and more strict with her when it comes to things like the use of her phone, TV, and even which friends she invites over. It is to the point where my daughter dreads visiting her dad. What can I do to remedy this? Sarah, great question. And let me start by saying a lot of the concerns you have, these are things that parents in intact relationships will have when you're parenting a child who is a teenager. But what's challenging here is that you and your ex are figuring things out and trying to co-parent under different households. I would start by trying to have a discussion with your ex about your thoughts, observations, and things that your daughter might be telling you. I would suggest having the conversation in a way that's not critical, but rather constructive. I would also recommend if your ex is open to it, that you consult with a third party family therapist, if your child's in therapy, consult with your child's therapist. But look, parenting is not easy. Co-parenting with different rules in each parent's house can be challenging, not only for the parents, 
but especially the child. To the extent possible, have an open dialogue and discussion to really maximize your daughter spending time with her father. But Dave, I want to ask you because this is a challenge. As I mentioned, it's a challenge when people are together, technology, friends, the child here is 12 years old. What are your thoughts? First of all, you better get used to this because it never ends. <laughs> you, you'll always, you, will, you will always be, you will always be the parent to your child, no matter whether the child is an infant, a teenager, or a grown adult. And so you're always going to have these conversations. So th- my advice is to just communicate as, as much as possible because there'll be things like, let's say you've got a small child and one day you realize the child's fingernails are getting rather long. And it's like, well, is it my job to cut their fingernails or is that my ex-wife's <laughs> job to cut their fingernails? And that seems like such a small detail. It's just one example of, of hundreds of things, thousands of things that are going to come up. So you're not going to agree on everything. So there's going to be a lot of give and take. But I think the worst thing to do is to kind of go radio silent or to limit communication to like uh, short text messages or, or whatever. Get on the phone with your ex-spouse when something comes up with your child. And do your best to talk it out. It may not be pleasant, but it'll be the best thing. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On podcast is author Brad Stolberg who has a fantastic new book out, Master of Change. Brad is a regular contributor to the New York Times, and his work has been featured in major media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal. Brad, welcome to the podcast. It is absolutely fantastic to have you with us. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. And Brad, we're going to get into a lot of fascinating topics, your books, and really your work. But I want to start by asking you, you refer to yourself as a sustainable excellence expert. Tell everybody, what is that? Well, I certainly haven't called myself an expert. Other people call me an expert. Uh, At the end of the, the hour, listeners, you can agree or disagree. I'll leave that up to you. I think about sustainable excellence as feeling good in doing good in a way that aligns with your long term goals. So it's really about getting the best out of yourself, the things that matter to you most. Brad, I want to talk about your latest book, Master of Change. It really introduces this concept of change as a cycle of order, disorder, and reorder. Now, a cynic might say that the model is common sense, right? Stuff happens, you get over it. How does your model and approach really differ from conventional perspective on change? Well, I think that it differs in two important ways. The first is that the predominant narrative around change is that it is something that is to be avoided, that it's generally negative, and most important, that we try to get back to where we were before the change occurs. I think that we all experienced this in 2021, about a year into the COVID pandemic, when every single news outlet was running some variety of the headline, what will we need to do for things to get back to normal? Or how long will it take for things to get back to normal? When will things finally get back to normal? And my model of change recognizes that there's actually no such thing as getting back to normal. There's only moving forward to stability somewhere new. So instead of order, disorder, order, it accepts that we are always somewhere in the cycle of order, disorder, reorder. And the second important difference between my model of change and what is conventionally out there is I have this construct called rugged flexibility. And I really argue that it is the key to navigating all of these cycles of order, disorder, and reorder. And to be rugged is to be tough, to be determined, to be durable. To be flexible is to be soft, to be supple, to bend easily without breaking. And most thinking on this topic says that you either are rugged or flexible. What I found in five years of research and reporting is that individuals that navigate life's chaos really well, they're not rugged or flexible, they're rugged and flexible. And it's this sort of non-dual thinking that yes, you want to know 
your sources of strength, your core values, the hills that you'll die on, the things that you will hold on to tight. And you want to challenge yourself to apply those things creatively to different circumstances and then to be flexible and to adapt on everything else. So if I could summarize, we're constantly moving somewhere in the cycle of order, disorder, reorder. We never get back to where we were trying to as a fool's errand. And navigating that cycle requires equal parts ruggedness and flexibility. Brad, I absolutely love that. And you mentioned non-dual thinking. Explain that more to us and, and, and what that really means. So dual thinking is, in the simplest terms, this or that. It is very Western. It's very linear. And it's a wonderful tool. It underlies logic and it underlies the scientific method, which is all about trying to disprove a hypothesis. It is either this or that. So by no means am I here to throw out dual thinking. However, sometimes dual thinking approaches its limits. And for the more complex, nuanced things of life, an approach called non-dual thinking, I often think helps us even more. And non-dual thinking acknowledges that many things are not this or that, but they are this and that, and that all truth is found in paradox. So a couple of examples is if you want to grow, you need stress and rest, not stress or rest, but stress and rest. If you want to be a sustainable performer for a long period of time, you need lots of self-discipline, but you also need lots of self-compassion, not either or, both and. Another example that I discuss at length in the book is that a key to happiness is something called tragic optimism. Not tragedy or optimism, but tragedy and optimism. So it appears throughout the book because I think it's just so important and so powerful when it comes to really enduring chaos and change that is even part and parcel of the most average human existence. I don't want to ask you, Brad, and I'm a family law attorney, matrimonial attorney. I work with people going through one of the most difficult times in their lives, whether the relationship is ending, a divorce, separation. How could someone going through a breakup, a split, the divorce process, really use the principles that you talk about in your book to go from one relationship to the next step and the next chapter in their life with hope, with optimism, and really not fear this unknown world ahead? Right. Ooh, there's so much to unpack. And I, I'm going to put forward a disclaimer, which you know better than anyone in the world, which is no two divorces are exactly alike. Sure, of course. Uh, I'm sure many relationships come to completion where both parties are really satisfied with their relationship and are excited about moving on. And probably the majority don't look as happy. So a couple of things come to mind. The first is knowing that you're not going to get back to how things were your life will look different after a major change like this. And not trying to get back to how things were, not having the expectation that you're going to feel the same way that you used to, but expecting that, yeah, you're going to have some sort of stability, but that stability is going to be somewhere new and you're going to have to play an active role in creating it. The second thing is the importance of social support. Uh, study after study after study shows that a core of resilience, I would say the core of resilience is social support. So when you're in those periods of disorder, when it feels like the ground is swept out from underneath you, seeking social support, asking for help, seeking counsel is so important. And then the third thing I'll mention right off the bat is this notion of tragic optimism, which says that you don't want to be a Pollyanna. You don't want to practice toxic positivity it's unrealistic for so many people to say, my relationship just ended. I'm going to find all this meaning and immediately grow and be really happy. If you can feel that way, great. But for a lot of people, that's bullshit. It's unattainable. So it's about accepting the tragedy and the loss and the pain and the suffering of what's happening. And at the same time, holding on to hope that even if it doesn't feel like it right now, in the future, things will feel different and perhaps they'll even feel better. Again, you won't go back to order, but there's potential, there's possibility, and most people do create reorders that when they look back on what they're going through, they don't have to like it, but they can at least appreciate the lessons that they learned. I, I love that because I see so many people either during a separation or after a divorce want to quickly jump back in and start dating again or search for happiness. So, so many friends and family and different people say, you have to get back out there, you have to do this, life's going to get better. 
And I, I, I don't think, I think it sometimes sets people up for failure because they're not ready to get back into it and to do some of those things. So I love your take and I love your approach with that. I want to talk about fear and change. Some people, they simply fear change. Are you the type of person whose gut reaction to change is to resist it or to embrace it? I think it depends on the change, me personally. I am pretty good with 99% of changes. I think the 1% that I would put in the capital T trauma category, death, really severe illness, I'm not excited about. And, and I don't think too many people are. You have to be a really good Buddhist to, to want to welcome those things. And, and even then it's hard. Uh, but for everything else, I, I do welcome change. But I wasn't always this way. I certainly wasn't this way 10 years ago. And probably even when I started writing this book, I was more on the stability side of, of things. And what I learned in the research and reporting for the book is in another example of non-dual thinking, it's not really stability or change, it's stability and change, and even better, stability through change. And what I've realized is that if I know my sources of ruggedness, my core values, the hills that I'll die on, the things that matter to me most, and I stay in touch with them, then it allows me to be very flexible and adaptable. Because even when things are changing around me fast, I can always come back to my values and say, hey, what would it look like to tell the truth in this situation? What would it look like to prioritize my health in this situation? What would it look like to be authentic in this situation? And those core values, they essentially are the ground that you stand on when everything else around you is swirling and feels out of control. I think that before I wrote this book, I thought that entering change was just the flexibility side of the equation, not the ruggedness. And I think going through this process, it helped me learn that, hey, you can always have some sources of ruggedness that you can lean on in, in a kind of paradoxical way. Those sources of ruggedness empower you to be better at being flexible. Did writing the book help you really figure out your core values or what's the process for you? What's the process that you would suggest that people really go through to figure out what's most important to them? What are someone's core values? So when you face certain moments and go through certain changes, you can come back to exactly what you talked about, those core values. That's right. So there's a list of the most common 100 core values in the book, and I think it's a really good starting point. The research here is pretty clear that this strategy is most effective when you can narrow this down to three to five core values. Because if you pick everything, then you end up kind of not really picking anything, right? So core values, some examples, love, compassion, strength, kindness, discipline, creativity, intellect, reputation, uh, wisdom, so on and so forth. I could go on for a hundred. And you want to get down to three to five. And then once you do get down to those three to five, it's really important that you define them in concrete terms because they can't just be words that live on your bathroom mirror or in the organizational or firm world. They can't just be a poster on the wall that nobody really knows what it means. But when you define it in concrete terms, it makes it real. And then for each core value, ideally you come up with a few ways that you practice that in day-to-day -day life. And it almost becomes like an internal dashboard for you. You can ask yourself, hey, Am I practicing my core values in the way that I want to? And if I am, you ought to feel good and do well in a way that aligns with your long-term goals. I really think like this is the key to excellence. And when you're out of sync with your core values, you can ask yourself, hey, what can I do to nudge myself back in sync and then see how I feel and perform is, is a result. Now, I'm going to preempt you because I, I can see you might be asking this question next. A lot of people might think, this is great, but your list of 100, all of these sound good. So how am I supposed to know like the guiding attributes of my life? You read my mind. That's exactly where I was going to go. So there's two ways into this. The first is to imagine yourself 10, 20, 30 years down the road, looking back on current you. Really close your eyes and envision that. What would future you be proud of? Those are probably core values. The second way into this is to think of someone whom you really admire. And this can be someone that you know well, but it can also be a public figure. And sometimes it's even better because then you just get the idea of the person, not the real person. <laughs> Ask yourself, what are the qualities about that person that you really admire and why? 
And that's generally another really good inroads to your core values. And core values, do they change with age as people get older, as people have certain life experiences? Like that, those questions, should people be asking them on an ongoing basis throughout life? I, I like to do this annually. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. I prefer to do a core values inventory and just come back to my values and ask myself, how have I been doing on them? And are they still my values? And in my own life, they've changed. And the research would say the same, that yes, it is completely normal for them to change. Some people, they don't change. I'd still say it's your current core values that take you to your new ones. So you can almost think of like, we're all going to change over the course of our life. It's the subtitle of the book is, how do you think about your identity when everything is changing, including you? And it's really the core values that you hold and that you practice that guides your evolution. Brad, it's said by some that those who have led fulfilling lives, they've taken risks in their life. And those that avoid risk at all costs missed out on great adventure. Agree, disagree? What's your opinion on that theory? I agree. I think that you have to take risk to have texture in meaning, in fulfillment, in life. The reason that we don't or that we're hesitant is generally fear. Because when you take a risk, when you really care about something, which to me is taking a risk, you make yourself vulnerable because things might not go your way. And I think back to being in middle school, and now I have a young son, and I see it with some of the kids in in his class. The really cool, popular kids that are insecure, they never try hard. And I think the reason they don't try hard is because they're scared that if they try hard and they fail, it'll be an embarrassment. So what do they do? They protect themselves by not trying hard. They don't take a risk. And I just think that that is not how you get texture and meaning and fulfillment in life. I think that you've got to try hard, but you also have to know that the things that you care about are the things that break your heart. And it gets back to tragic optimism. It's almost like the cost of caring deeply and stepping into the arena and really giving something your all is that eventually that thing will break your heart because that thing will change. The Olympian that gives their all to their sport, well, eventually they age out and they retire. The person that has the best of relationships, it's been married for 60 years, someone is going to probably die first. So it's just kind of like the cost of caring is that you get your heart broken, but I think that's also how you live a, a full and textured life. Brad, your book, Master of Change, it follows your previous book, The Practice of Groundedness. Tell us the differences between the books. Tell us what motivated you to write the new book. Master of Change is, I think, really was motivated by our current moment. So I wrote the book really quickly. I wrote it really in 2021. And and for publishing, like two years to have an idea, write a book and turn around is is quickly. And I saw at the time, the pandemic just was a major disruption for how we live, how we work, how we play, how we grieve. I also saw artificial intelligence on the horizon. I realized that even though we had gotten through a really tumultuous election season in 2020, 2024 was going to be every bit as ugly, if not uglier. I had a hunch that we were in for geopolitical unrest. And it just felt like there was going to be a lot of disorder and chaos into the world that I was raising my kids in, into the world that I was walking into in, in the prime of my career. And they say, like, write the book that you need the most. So I wrote the book that I needed, which is how do I maintain stability? How do I strive for excellence? How do I be well and do well in this world? And how do I even make sense of this world? So that's Master of Change. Practice of Groundedness, my prior book, is really around what are the foundational habits and practices to set yourself up to be able to strive for what you want. So if practice of groundedness is like the base of the mountain, you need a really strong base. Master of change is where you start climbing and it starts raining and the wind blows and lightning strikes and there's an avalanche and you're like, what do I do? That's that book. How do you see the principles of master of change applying to some of the things you talked about, societal, global challenges, such as economic recessions or pandemics? I think tragic optimism and rugged flexibility are both so important. So tragic optimism, again, you can accept that things are chaotic. You can accept that some things just suck. And the work of a mature adult is not to lose hope. 
And I think this is so important. And I think you see this so often right now on the internet, on social media, on the news, is you get these two extremes. In one extreme is what I'm going to call the toxic positivity extreme. Everything is hunky-dory and great always. Just make the best of things, grow from everything, go to the organic farmer's market, get your food, have a great life. The other extreme is nihilism and despair, which is everything is so terrible. These big structural forces are at play. There's nothing I can do to make life better. Screw the machine. Everything's broken. It's very like postmodernist thinking. And I think that both of these actually have a lot in common and that they're both cop-outs. Because if everything is so terrible, well, then nothing you do can change it. So you absolve yourself of any responsibility to do anything to try to make it better. And if everything is always so great, always, well, then there's nothing to work on. There's nothing to improve. And I think when we enter into chaotic times, we need to accept that there is a lot that is broken about the world. And there is a lot that's really hard. But if we want to fix the broken world, we can't become broken people. We have to maintain our hope. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is just knowing those sources of ruggedness, knowing those values, knowing the hills that you're going to die on, they really become the compass for you as you navigate all sorts of disorder. Brad, can you share some lessons or insights from your own life where you experienced significant personal growth? I can. Let's see. There's there's so many. I'm going to try to pick three. Let's do three. So the first is I was a competitive endurance athlete and a pretty good one. And I suffered an injury to my calf that essentially ended my endurance sports career. And it had been a fairly outsized part of my identity, pretty big part of how I derived meaning and how I thought of myself. And going through that process was a major disorder event for me. But on the other side, I realized that actually it wasn't so much running that I valued. It was movement and health and training and that there were other ways to do that. It also led to this theory that I have of the importance of thinking of identity like a house. So if you only have one room in a house and that house floods or catches fire, you're screwed. You're really in for it. But if you have a house with multiple rooms and one room floods or catches fire, you can go seek stability or go seek refuge in the other rooms while you resolve what's going on in, in the chaotic one. And I think if we can consider identity like a house, well, the risk is if you only have one room in your identity house, if your whole identity is runner or attorney or parent or husband or wife or athlete or artist or writer, whatever it is, that makes you really fragile because eventually there's going to be significant change in that room. And if you don't have other parts of your identity that you can lean into, uh, it makes it much more hard to navigate that change. So, and I'm going to come back to the other two examples, but I think this is worth a double click. The story there that, that really brings this to light is the speed skater, Niels Vanderpool. So he won two gold medals in the 2022 Olympics and he shattered the world record. So he is the best speed skater to ever step foot on the planet. But in the lead up to the 2022 Olympics, he was underperforming. And he asked himself why. And he said, I have a lot of fear. And then he said, well, why do I have all this fear? And what he realized is that his entire identity was as a speed skater. There was no Niels Vanderpool outside of Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. He only had one room in his identity house. And he realized that one injury, one illness, one misstep, a split second every four years could wreck him. So what did he do in the lead up to the 2022 games? He did something that's unheard of for a world-class athlete, which is he took a normal weekend. So starting Friday evening to Monday morning, Vanderpool did nothing related to the sport of speed skating. He went on hikes. He joined a book club. He went out for pizza and beers with his friends. He essentially renovated his house. He added more rooms to his identity. And he told me that as a result of doing that, he could shed his fear because I love he knew, yeah. isn't it the best story? Because like he, yeah. he knew that he, there was more to him than this one thing. And people think, well, you got to be obsessed to be great. And he was obsessed. He trained 40 hours a week, but it just released enough pressure so that he could compete from a place of like winning versus not to lose. I love that. Brad, in, in your research, did you come across anything that was surprising or any counterintuitive findings about how individuals respond to and navigate change? I think the most counterintuitive is that for really challenging 
uh, disorder events in our lives, we often think that we need to find meaning and growth immediately. I kind of alluded to this earlier. But it turns out that if we try to force meaning and growth on a crappy experience, it makes it worse. And it actually gets in the way of us finding meaning and growing. So what this means is that sometimes things just suck and just showing up and getting through is enough. And you don't have to tell yourself, I'm going to grow from this. You don't have to tell yourself this is somehow meaningful. In the moment, it can just suck. But then if you keep showing up, eventually you get to the other side and the meaning and growth happens on its own terms. So there's a study that I cite where people had significant, significant traumatic injuries. Like these required level one surgery, excuse me, these required surgeries at level one trauma centers. And researchers followed these individuals to see how they would, how they would adapt to this major disorder event, this major change in their life. And what they found is that for the first three months, even people that did great, they were on a cycle that looked like it was going to take them towards PTSD. And at the three-month mark, only after three months did they finally start to show signs of deriving some meaning and growth from their experience. So I think this gets right at what you were alluding to earlier, which is if you are, if your life just gets blown up because of divorce or an illness or a loss, it's so easy for other people to look at you and almost be uncomfortable because you're suffering and say, well, you're going to grow from this. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But then if you put that extra pressure on yourself to have to grow from something that sucks, instead of just allowing yourself to get through, to be compassionate to yourself, it actually slows the healing and growth process. So it's this paradox of the best way to grow from true pain and struggle is to release from any need to grow at all and just show up and get through. Brad, you mentioned your father, your parents, for anyone listening. How would you apply the principles that you've researched that you've written about to parenting a child or children in this day and age in this world? So the first is, I think, multiple rooms in the identity house. That is so important. Even if little Johnny is the star of the AAU basketball team or travel baseball team, make sure that little Johnny has other things that he derives meaning and self-worth from. I think that there's so much pressure to over-specialize for kids, especially in big cities, whether it's in sport, whether it's in academics, whether it's in piano, where you, you think your kid's going to be world-class and you really want them to do well. So you're well-intentioned. So you just have them do this one thing. But most people aren't world-class. And even if they are, when they retire, it's going to suck. So um, multiple rooms in the identity house, I think, is the first. The second is in age-appropriate ways, teaching kids tragic optimism. Teaching kids that, yeah, sometimes things are really sad and that you can be sad and happy on the same day. You can even be sad and happy within the same hour. It's okay to experience a range of feelings and that, well, there is so much that is beautiful about life and we want to encourage our kids to find joy and be happy. We also have to encourage them to feel sadness because we know that repressing the, the tragedy part eventually comes to, to bite us in the ass. And then the, the third thing, in particular from this book that I would say is helping kids understand their core values. Again, in an age-appropriate language. So what are the things that really make you you as a young adult, even as a grade schooler? And is a grade schooler going to say it's strength, compassion, and discipline? Probably not, but a grade schooler might say that I want to be kind. And then you have a conversation about what that means. So when everyone's picking on one kid, you can ask yourself, hey, what's the kind thing to do? And those would be the three things. Brad, you've written four books. Your latest book is Terrific Master of Change. I have to ask you, as an author, what topics do you still want to tackle? What might be next for book number five? I'm really interested in taking a big comprehensive swing at this idea of excellence. Uh, at feeling good and doing good in a way that aligns with your long-term goals. And by big and comprehensive swing... I mean, linking evolution to excellence. Like even before, I'm really going to nerd out with you for a second here. No, even, do it. Let's do it. <laughs> even, even, even before species, so long before humans came along, before species had any cognition, any ability to think, they're hardwired to move towards environments that promote their survival. And 
they're hardwired to do this because it feels good. So this is if you accidentally touch a hot stove, you immediately, you have a reflex to snap back. You don't think, oh, the stove is hot. You just immediately do. You immediately snap back. So we're hardwired to avoid bad, but we're also hardwired to feel like an essential rightness when something is good. So this is why when you watch Steph Curry launch a three off the dribble. Which I can do all night. You don't have to be a basketball fan <laughs> no. to know that that is right. No. When you see beautiful art, there's nothing in your brain. There's nothing, nothing intellectual that says it's art. You just kind of see it. You know it. And I want to explore that feeling because I think that feeling underlies excellence, both observing it and creating it. Like when you're in the zone, when you're having a phenomenal conversation, if you're a woodworker and you're just like making craft, you're not thinking, you're in flow, right? And I want to link these feelings to how we find meaning in life and, and ultimately how we create and how we generate good things in the world. Uh, I absolutely love that. Absolutely love that. I want to bring on producer Dave for a fun segment we, we do on the Shine Up podcast called They Said It. Yes, producer Dave reporting for duty. I do have one quick question for you, Brad, before we do the segment, and that is that I note that we have something in common and that is a lack of hair atop our heads. And I'm wondering, <laughs> is that an example of a change that you had to embrace? It is an example of a change I had to embrace, and I embraced it early. It started it started receding early on. I messed around with the clippers for a while, and then I just started shaving it in the shower. I haven't looked back since. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm rugged and flexible. I practice what I preach. Good for you. I, I leaned into it as well. All right. Let's do a round of They Said It. They Said It. They Said It. They Said It. It's the segment where I present three quotes from famous people and just see how Brad reacts to them. First one comes to us from President John F. Kennedy, and it goes like this. Change is the law of life, and those who look only to the past or present are certain to miss the future. Your thoughts on that one? I mean, how can I argue with JFK? <laughs> I think uh, that's my immediate thought. I think he's right. And I think that the way that we navigate the future is by looking to the past and being fully immersed in the present. But if we can't look ahead, then we really struggle to adapt. Part of what makes our species as humans so adaptable is that we can look ahead. We're actually one of the only species that can imagine what life is going to be like in the next moment. So many other species live moment to moment. And it's the gift and the curse, right? It's the curse because we know that we're going to die. And no other species has to live with that burden. But it's the gift because it allows us to make all kinds of complex plans and build a society. So, yes, I'm buying JFK. All right. One vote for JFK. Next quote comes to us from Maya Angelou. And she said the following... If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Your thoughts, Brad? I'm partially buying. I'm, I'm hesitantly buying, but it's tough also to, to not buy Maya Angelou. So I'm buying Maya Angelou. <laughs> but I don't know if you can't change it, change your attitude. I would substitute if you can't change it, accept it. Mm. Because I don't think that you have to like everything. But I think that you can accept that some things are just the way that they are, even if you don't like them. So that's my slight edit. I'm sorry, Maya Angelou. I can't believe I'm editing Maya Angelou. I, I like what you said there, Brad. Cause I've, the karma I've... gods are not going to be happy with me, or the writing gods are looking down on me and like, what the hell are you doing, Brad? She had a big heart. She would forgive you. But I, I, I've seen these very philosophical quotes that say, everything in your life is a result of your choices. If you don't like it, make different choices. And just because something sounds prophetic doesn't mean it's true. I have a child with autism. He's wonderful, but he didn't choose to have autism. So don't put that on him. Yeah. <laughs> I go I, I go to my initials when I read quotes like that, which are BS. Sounds good, good on Instagram. <laughs> right. But, um, sometimes things just suck. No one chooses cancer, random cell division. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Our third and final quote comes to us from British rocker David Bowie. He said the following, still don't know what I was looking for. I'm having trouble reading this. It's so small. Pardon me. 
Let's make this bigger on my screen. All right, here we go. Still don't know what I was waiting for, and my time was running wild. A million dead-end streets, and every time I thought I'd got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. Of course, that's from the song. Changes. Thought it would be appropriate. Your thoughts on that, Brad? My thoughts on this are a big, big upvote for (laughs) David Bowie. What he is describing is known in behavioral science is the arrival fallacy, which states that we fall for this trap where we think, if I just launch a bestseller, if I just become partner at this firm, if I just date this beautiful woman or man, if I just make the Olympics, then I'll be content. And what the research shows is that that is an illusion. And we're just not wired to be content. Our species is wired to strive. And I think that the work is finding joy in the striving, because if you think that some kind of result is going to change you as a person, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. Isn't there that great study that studied the happiness level of people before and after they won the lottery and it was either unchanged or maybe even worse? I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I always find that interesting. That's it. And in, in those studies, I think are just a wonderful example of everyone thinks that, oh, if I win the lottery, I'll be happy. But nope, you, you stay about the same. And you're right. Some people also experience a decrease in happiness. And the theory behind that is suddenly your life has all this complexity that it didn't have because now your family and your friends want a piece of you. And now you start to buy all this stuff that you thought that you would own, but it ends up owning you. So yeah, it's interesting stuff. That's for sure. Well, sometimes things just suck, but what doesn't suck is Brad's performance on They Said It, Well Done, and you pass with flying colors, according to this reporter. Back to you, Evan. Dave, that was great. And Brad, absolutely brilliant stuff on the Shine Up podcast. I want to thank you for coming on. Your latest book, Master of Change, is a must-read. Tell everybody listening where they can pick up the books, find out information, read all your latest works and everything that you have going on. The book is available wherever you get books. It's in all formats. So if you prefer to listen to books, it's on Audible, Libro, whatever app you prefer. Uh, You can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookseller, you name it. And the best place to learn more about me and my work is my website, which is just my name, www.bradstulberg.com. This was great. Brad, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it as well. Episode 70. Wow. I can't believe 70 episodes in the books. Today's episode was fantastic. Brad Stolberg was great. Check out his new book, Master of Change. Producer Dave, 70 episodes together. 70 episodes together. And I used to have a full head of hair, Evan. And as I pointed out on this episode, myself and the guest both have not a lock left. That's not true. It's <laughs> as, as I'm bald by choice. It's been a labor of love. And here's the 70 more. That's right, and a great show today, and we inch closer to 2024 in Season 4 of the Shine Up Podcast, and you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, including Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. 